This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. Before we turn to our guests for this episode, just a few words about our podcast. This is episode 25 of the podcast and the last podcast of our second season. It's also my last episode of Construction Law Today as the producer and the host. It's been great fun and I've learned a lot, but it's now time for me to turn my attention to other projects and time for me to introduce the new host and producer of Construction Law Today. I do hope to come back in the future from time to time and produce additional episodes. The new host and producer of the podcast is my great friend and previous guest on the podcast, David Suchar from the Maslin Law Firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dave is an active member of the ABA Forum on Construction Law, having served on the steering committee for Division 7, that section which is devoted to insurance, surety, and liens. He's also served as a contributing editor for the construction lawyer and chapter author for construction defects and the construction checklist books. David's an accomplished construction law practitioner with a national practice in the field of construction insurance. He's also the father of three boys and a great guy. Dave, thanks for being here and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Buzz. I've been honored to work with you on the podcast and to learn from each of the first 25 episodes. Like you said, I practice in the construction and insurance coverage space. And the insurance aspects of projects have been my ticket to work on projects and claims, large and small, all across the country. And then here in Minnesota, I work on construction defect payment and lien cases as well. So Dave, I'm interested in hearing from you a little bit about what you see as the key issues that will be coming up for the podcast in its next season. We already have plans, Buzz, for podcasts in 2022 on early dispute resolution, developing insurance products that impact the construction industry, including cyber insurance, new takes on the developing AIA contract documents, and an episode on blockchain and other emerging technology and its impact on the construction space. I plan to tape episodes at about the same pace you have, Buzz, so once a month, and I'll do my very best to carry on what you started here. Those sound like some really interesting ideas, and I'll be looking forward to the next season. Dave, you may want to tell our listeners how they might get in touch with you. 
Sure, Buzz. My email address is david.suchar, that's S-U-C-H-A-R, at maslin, M-A-S-L-O-N.com. And let me add that as the new podcast rolls out, my contact information will be available at the end of each podcast. And let me now take just a minute to say thanks to you, Buzz, for starting this incredible podcast tradition here at the ABA Forum on Construction Law. Before you invented the podcast in 2019, the forum didn't really have a way to deliver content like this outside of our in-person meetings. And now you've had many thousands of downloads with people listening all around the world, uh, including during a long period of time when we couldn't get together in person. So I thank you on behalf of the Forum on Construction Law for adding all you have by creating this new medium to deliver content. And let me ask you this, Buzz, uh, what's been your favorite thing you'll take away from having hosted the podcast over these last two and a half years? Well, first, I should say, Dave, thanks for those kind words. Really appreciate it. In terms of, I think, what I've learned, I've been impressed with the variety of topics that touch construction law in some way. After uh, practicing construction law for some 35 years, I guess I thought I knew it all. And what I've learned in talking to our guests is how broad the field is and how much there is to learn. So thanks for the nice words, Dave, and I wish you the very best of luck in the future and call on me to help out in any way. Now let's go on to our episode of Construction Law Today. Welcome to the podcast. In the aftermath of the June 24, 2020 partial collapse of the Champlain Tower South condominium in suburban Miami, Florida, which killed 98 people, many legal issues have arisen and more will undoubtedly come to the forefront as the extensive litigation over the matter unfolds. In episode 23 of the podcast, we considered some of the issues relating to building codes and their enforcement impacting building safety as the built environment ages. Implicit in the matters surrounding building maintenance and safety as buildings age, and perhaps fundamentally central to those issues, is the question of the operational and governing structure of multi-owner buildings. Many of us may already be familiar with this issue in the context of how homeowners associations govern residential condominium developments. As the Champlain Towers disaster has demonstrated, HOAs and other similar governing bodies have to make hard choices about how to maintain and repair their buildings, and even harder choices about how to pay for this necessary work. Many expect that the legal issues surrounding the why, how, and when of this decision-making process will increasingly present complex questions for construction and real estate lawyers representing contractors, engineers, banks, and the HOAs themselves. To introduce our listeners to this fascinating subject, is the man who is arguably the leading authority in this field. Dr. Evan McKenzie is the head of the political science department at the University of Illinois at Chicago and a faculty member at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Law, where he teaches a course 
on the law of common interest housing. He holds a JD from the UCLA Law School and a PhD in political science from the University of Southern California. He practiced law for 10 years in Southern California, including a great deal of construction defect litigation. He is the author of Privatopia, Homeowners Associations and the Rise of Residential Private Government, published by Yale University Press, and many other works on common interest housing. His most recent book, co-edited with Dennis Judd and Alba Alexander, is Private Metropolis, The Eclipse of Local Democratic Governance, from the University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Let's start with a little bit of history. Where does the condominium governance and the idea of condos themselves come from? And how long has it been a part of American concepts of real estate ownership? Well, thanks for having me, Buzz. It's really a pleasure. Condominium housing actually came to the United States in 1961 uh, and was authorized across the country in different states between 61, 64, 65. So it was the product of the early 60s. It came to this country from Puerto Rico, where they had been building condos previously. But, you know, the it's a funny thing because the law of condominiums is it's state law mainly, and uh, it is not really common law. It's re- they're really creatures of statutory law. They don't fit well in the in the Anglo-American legal tradition in terms of fee simple ownership because, you know, in our legal traditions, a structure needs to be connected to the land to have it be considered real estate. And these sort of airspace units floating in space didn't really fit the definition. So uh, special laws had to be written to enable the creation of condominiums at all. And those are state condominium acts and they came to us in the early 60s. So that's really quite a short time and that's the entire lifespan of condominium housing in this country. So our various state legislatures create this body of statutory law allowing for the development of the condo industry. Where does the idea of the condo association or the homeowners association begin as a way to govern those buildings? Well, that is one of the things I've really tried to learn a lot about, you know, as a political science professor, these are private governments. These condominium and homeowner association governments are essentially the private equivalent of a municipal government in many ways. And when they were originally set up in their current form, it was the early 20th century, mainly the 1920s. And the famous developer, Jesse Clyde Nichols in the country club district of Kansas City, was really the person who started putting a lot of it together. And then there was a development in New Jersey called Bradburn, New Jersey, which is still around, a beautiful community, uh, set up in 1928. And they, between them, they really created the prototype of the modern condominium association government, which is essentially modeled on the city manager system. You have an elected board of trustees, essentially, or directors, and then you have, ideally, one of them is chosen as the president to preside over them. It's kind of like a mayor, like a weak mayor, and then you hire professional management. And we use private management companies, which are kind of the equivalent of a city manager, a professional city manager. And so they're modeled, our current system is modeled on the uh, city manager system of government. As it relates to the risks that arise as the built environment ages, obviously money 
and the collection of monies to pay for maintenance and repair becomes a big issue. What do we know about how condo associations across the country are either dealing with or failing to deal with that important aspect? Well, I think one of the biggest problems we're facing is that we have 350,000 of these private communities in the United States. And we know every survey that has been done of their finances suggests that many, if not most of them, have inadequate reserves. And I say inadequate because if they had a reserve study done, which most of them have not recently, then the recommendations of an expert would be, you should have more money socked away in your reserves than you actually have, and often much, much more than they should have. But we don't really know. We don't really know because state governments don't keep track of this. And the only real oversight they have is if they happen to have a good property management firm that makes them pay attention to this. Uh, Really, nobody's kind of minding the store with the state of uh, association finances. But every expert who has looked at it uh, has concluded that they're under-reserved. And there are a number of people, there are attorneys, there are accountants and reserve specialists, reserve firms that do reserve studies. And they all say the same thing. There's a massive problem. In fact, Fannie Mae, in their, one of their recent uh, lender letters, basically said the same thing. Uh, and they have better knowledge than just about anyone. So we know this is a serious problem. Give our listeners a sense of what are those kinds of potentially unanticipated expenses that association can find itself faced with? I like to put them in two categories. One category is the, the sort of inevitable things. You might call it wear and tear, you know, the things that are the subject of deferred maintenance, usually. The roof the, uh, that's just got a lifespan on it of 20 years, 10 years, 30 years, whatever. And um, the concrete, as what happened with the Surfside building, the, the concrete was spalling and deteriorating. That's just something that happens over time, you know, decks and balconies windows become a source of of leakage. They simply begin to wear out. Sometimes other really important components, underground garages begin to admit water. Sometimes there is land subsidence, you know, big ticket items like this, swimming pools that require maintenance or repair. And sometimes as with Surfside, they're connected to the building. They're all, you know, part of one massive concrete structure. These are the kinds of things we're talking about, structural components, uh, air conditioning, heating, uh, HVAC systems, the electrical systems, plumbing systems, all these things begin to age. Here in Chicago, in many cases, it's the building facade itself. If you have a building that was converted, that was built in the 1920s, was converted to a condominium. We have a lot of those in, in you know, Chicago, New York, other cities. Sometimes the entire facade of the building has to be replaced. And these can be you know, seven-figure items. It seems to me that from the perspective of the HOA, one of the most difficult problems is if you have the knowledge and if it's reasonably clear, communication with your membership, in particular to raise money, has got to be very, very difficult. Yes, it is, because nobody wants to hear this. And the problem really begins with developers. I mean, Nobody wants really to, for the assessment payments, the monthly assessments to be any higher than necessary. Nobody, and they shouldn't be any higher than necessary. But developers often try to set the reserves as low as possible or the assessments as low as possible, including the contribution to reserves. They try to set that as low as possible because it facilitates sales, makes it easier for people to qualify for a loan so they can sell the units. Then when it gets turned over to the owners in two or three years, 
uh, the owners look at it and they say, well, we don't want to raise, <laughs> we want to raise our assessments, you know, because then people can't afford it. And maybe some people will, will have been able to buy or they won't be able to afford to pay. And why should, this is the key problem. They'll say, why should I be setting aside a lot of money today so somebody else can have a nice roof in 10 years? And, and so they, <laughs> you know, they think about the setting aside money as if it was being done for somebody other than themselves. And uh, of course, you know, the problem is people don't know, buyers don't know usually what the state of reserves is, so they can often get away with doing this. And uh, that's when you get the deferred maintenance problem that afflicts places like uh, Surfside and others, where you end up with a huge burden and the backlog of funds that are required is just backbreaking. Evan, step outside of your typical role as an academic for just a minute and put your hat back on as a lawyer in private practice. What what are some of the kinds of things that attorneys representing buyers can do to protect buyers' interests as they're contemplating uh, buying one of these kinds of units? Well, normally the Condominium Act of any state will give a buyer the right to uh, obtain disclosure of the basic financial records of the association. The problem is that the, the standard way this works is uh, you don't acquire that right until after you are un, uh, have uh, signed a contract to purchase the unit. Now, that's good that you can access them, uh, particularly if your lawyer knows enough to ask for them. In Illinois, you know, they make a demand under a section of the Condo Act and then they get them uh, and then and that's fine. But you're already at that point, you've already focused on that unit. You've already put down your earnest money. You're already under contract. And sure, you know, there's way if you decide it's inadequate reserves, you could probably back out, but that's a hassle. I mean, you know, what needs to happen, in my opinion, is this needs to be disclosed much earlier when people are shopping for houses. You know, if they knew that the reserves were adequate or inadequate, that would affect their decision about whether to make an offer in the first place. And I think that would be a much greater incentive on associations to do a better job of having adequate reserves. See, maybe I can get a little feedback from you on something that has bothered me on a number of transactions where I've represented buyers, and that is sometimes you can get some financial information. What's the assessment? When was it changed? How much do they have in the bank now? What are the current expenses? But the hard part that I found from buyers' perspective is how do you learn about the quality and status of the building? It's one thing if it's a private residence, you can have a home inspector or someone like that go climb up on the roof and look, but I've had a lot of difficulty getting condo associations to allow prospective buyers to get inside the building and take a careful look. What's your experience been in that regard? Oh, absolutely. I think that's been everyone's experience. That is the situation with most condo buildings. And it's, um, it could be solved. The issue that here is that really nobody's going to know what the condition of the building is unless an expert looks at the whole building. And it isn't really a solution for me to have the potential purchaser of unit 201, you know, have someone do an inspection of the whole building. That is a huge undertaking. No individual buyer wants to pay for that. That's way too much. You know, uh, this is a, called a reserve study. This is really what needs to be done is a physical inspection of the building and a reserve study, which would be done, paid for by the association, ideally every three years or thereabouts, a thorough inspection of the whole building, all its components, what is their useful life, 
what will it cost to replace them? When will that need to be done? And how much will that cost per unit? And then you get a recommendation as to what the assessment levels with adequate reserves should really be. Well, no individual owner, prospective purchaser, I mean, is going to do that. That is something that the association should do. And a well-run association will do that. States don't actually require it in most cases. There's only a few states that require those. And in most states, it's just optional. In Illinois, for example, it's optional. You don't even have to do one. So if you have one, you have to disclose it if requested, but you don't have to do them. So you end up with inadequate knowledge, both on the part of the association and the prospective purchasers. We'll be right back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at fticonsulting.com. Welcome back to the podcast. Our subject today is the fascinating field of how HOAs govern and in fact raise money for their members to deal with issues of building upkeep and maintenance. We have a wonderful guest. His name is Evan McKenzie. He's the head of the political science department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Evan, I greatly enjoyed the first half of our discussion. What I'm most interested now in taking a look at some of your ideas about solutions. And I'm going to admit to you in advance, I'm a little skeptical. What do we need to start doing to solve the problems that you've identified? Well, there's a whole list of things, and I'm hoping at least some of them will come into fruition. But first, we need more intensive scrutiny at the planning and development stage of particularly the climate change impacts, because in addition to the normal wear and tear that we talked about, there also are like unusual or unanticipated things that can happen. One of those is things pertaining to climate change that really weren't thought about early on, fire risk, which is a growing issue in the West. We saw what happened surfside, sea level rise and salt water and so forth. And so, you know, more intensive planning and scrutiny, that'd be a really good thing. I think you need to make developers do a better job of funding the reserves at the outset so that the associations start off with more in reserve. And so they don't get a shock when they come in after three years and to say, oh my goodness, we have to raise our assessments because they don't want to. So better assessments. And then I think that we need to do something about board members. We need to get more qualified board members. Some have argued we should start allowing the payment of board members maybe better training, which is a, a tall order, and then maybe professional board members, maybe one professional on large associations, you know, as they do with big corporations. They'll have, you know, business corporations have professional board members, they pay. Maybe that needs to be looked at. But the key thing for me is mandating adequate reserve practices. We need to gather information. We need to make associations disclose what their reserve status is. So I think it can be seen publicly. So we need transparency. One key thing that is underway right now, there, is a, there are private efforts underway 
a number of people I know are working on this, to try to create a rating, a financial health rating for condo associations that would be to some extent public. Now, I think this should be on a state website, it should be free to everyone, but the way it'll probably get set up is you'll pay for it. You know, as a buyer, you can pay some amount of money to get the data, the financial rating of an association before you put down money to buy a unit there. And a number of people are working on putting that into practice right now. That would be a really good thing to do. And then I also think there needs to be a provision under the law, which we have in Illinois, and we don't have necessarily in other states, for basically putting associations in receivership and winding them down when they become financially unviable. Should not be left to the association to do that for themselves. There need to be procedures because, you know, these associations cannot last forever. Many of them simply are not going to be able to um, maintain their buildings. And when that happens, they maybe need to be turned back into apartments or something else. And there are ways to do that. And I think it should be part of the picture. I have to say that as I listen to some of these ideas, the immediate reaction I get in my brain is costs are going to go up. Do you have a sense as a very broad matter, if some of the ideas that you suggest were implemented, how much might it add to the cost of producing these kinds of residential units? Where I would focus would be on the things that cost the least. And I I think that is a definite, a legitimate concern. I I can't say, you know, how much it's going to add to the price of the initial sales price of a condo if you mandate adequate reserves. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's too much of a variable for me to process, but I do think it needs to be studied before building permits are issued. But look at what's already available. Associations already have their finances. They know their finances. Now, I think you could require that all associations do a reserve study every three years or every five years. That's cost several thousand dollars. Yes, it would. But in the long run, it's going to save money. And somebody has to pay for the long-term maintenance of the building. Right now, it's all on the owners. So I don't see a problem with requiring it to be done gradually. I think they save money in the long run. If you, it's Sure, it raises their reserves now. But I know people who have been hit with $70,000 per unit special assessments. I mean, this is the real problem. We can't have that. These folks at Surfside were facing six-figure special assessments to repair their building, and the end result is the building fell down. I think, just to interject here, especially when I don't have any definite statistics, but my sense is that a fairly high percentage of condominium units are owned by people on fixed incomes retirees, for example. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons why they're so averse to uh, maintaining adequate reserves, because (laughs) there's a couple of dimensions. One is they're on fixed incomes or moderate incomes. Other people are simply people of moderate income. And we need this type of housing for people in those categories. We should have moderately placed housing them. We need, but it's got to be sustainable. And the other wrinkle, and this is Maybe an insensitive way to put it, but if you are, you know, 75 or 80 years old and someone says you need to start planning, you know, for what the building's going to be like in 20 years, you may say, excuse me, <laughs> that's, I don't think that's my problem. So, you know, that's, these are the kinds of concerns that people have, but that's why I think you have to have a public policy dimension. I love the fact that private organizations uh, are trying to get involved in creating a rating system and, and that sort of thing. But I think the free disclosure, basically the, you know, a government website, you know, you can put reserve studies, you can mandate reserve studies, you can publish them. A lot of this doesn't have to cost that much. 
and consumers don't have to necessarily pay for it. So eh, there's a, maybe a private-public combination here that we could do that wouldn't increase the cost of housing too much. I'm going down your list of suggested remedies or partial remedies to solve some of the problems that I was looking at better board members. Now, in my development practice, often involving ski resorts, I think the criteria for becoming a board member was you couldn't have attended the previous meeting and that got you elected. And so the qualification uh, level was was pretty low. In a realistic way, how, how do you get better, more active board members? Yeah, that's a huge problem. I, I've always said that this whole f- type of housing really expects more of board members than, uh, or, or more of owners generally, and especially the ones who become board members, than we can reasonably expect. It really does demand too much of them. They're supposed to know so much, devote so much time and energy to running the association, deal with the conflicts. We, you know, and we haven't even gotten to one of the other major things that can happen, which is the totally unanticipated expense. Like, you know, a catastrophic failure, a lawsuit, legal expenses, things that can really blow a hole in a budget. These are the kinds of things that association directors have to deal with. The lawyers who practice in this field just seem to casually expect owners, you know, to come to all these meetings and read all these legal documents. And I said, I mean, it is really too much to expect. And that's why, you know, I'm throwing out this idea that has been suggested by others. Maybe there needs to be a professional involved. The other thing is the property managers. I mean, there's only about nine states where property managers even have to have licenses. In most of the states in this country, they don't even have to be licensed. I mean, you can't sell a hot dog without a license, you know, but you can manage a multi-million dollar budget of a condominium association and all these complex matters. No one knows what your educational attainment is and whether you're qualified. So that's the other thing. I mean, you know, cities have uh, city managers, right? That's a profession. You have to get a master's of public administration degree to do that. We should require something similar. Maybe not a master's degree, but we should require education and training and certification of property managers as well. You caused me to think of a number of questions. Let me, let me back up to a subject that we were talking about briefly off the air, and that is insurance. There's a complex interface between CGL insurance for the association and that for the individual units. What is the role of insurance in connection with dealing with the aging building problem in the context of the condominium? Yeah, well, this is an incredibly important subject. Many people kind of assume that either the first-party property insurance or the CGL or the liability policy that that the association has will somehow cover this, wear and tear type things, but normally it won't. Normally the insurance company, you call the insurance company and they'll say, essentially, we, we cover sudden and unanticipated or accidental loss. We don't cover inevitable wear and tear and deferred maintenance. It's just as they would with a single family home. If you said, you called your insurance company and said, hey, you know, my roof is worn out. Can I have a new roof? They go, yeah, you can pay for one though. You know, <laughs> it's not covered under your insurance policy. Now they might cover consequential damage to a covered property inside the building. If a roof leaks or something, that they might cover the consequential damage, but covering the actual building component that wears out over time, mm -mm, normally they're not going to pay that, not under the first party. And the CGL part, the liability part of it, they're, they're going to say, well, we cover damage to others. Now, then you get into this complicated relationship between the owner's insurance policy and the association's policy on the whole building. There are laws in the states that they vary. This is ext- can be extremely complex. 
For example, in Illinois, they have a situation where they make the association's policy primary, basically just for convenience, but then they have subrogation rights against the unit owners who might have caused the loss, so there might be liability on their part. And so they can be subrogated to you know, get the association's policy reimbursed. As you raise these issues, it brings back memories of trying to talk to homeowners associations about what their insurance policies may be able to do and what they can't. And one thing I've learned as a result of that is that then board members start asking me about D&O insurance. And as I start right. thinking about the increased obligations of board members, are D&O carriers going to provide that kind of insurance if it's the responsibility of a board member to collect these large reserves to protect against disasters like what happened in Florida? Yep. That is exactly what goes on. You know, I've been involved in you know, quite a bit of litigation, either in my old days as an attorney or I serve as an expert witness sometimes. And these are the issues that come up. You end up with this proliferation of parties and carriers. You know, if the directors and officers get sued or a claim is made that they have behaved in a manner that was below the standard of care, that they have breached their standard as fiduciaries of the owners, which is, of course, a very high standard, then they may seek, you know, to bring in their DNO carrier in there to defend them and uh, argue that, you know, they they take refuge under the business judgment rule, the idea that, well, we're, we get to make mistakes as long as we exercise good business judgment, don't engage in self-dealing and, and inform ourselves, basically. So that's their protection. And that's what, you know, attorneys normally tell them. They say, follow your, the advice that we give you and you're protected. In other words, if you do what your lawyer tells you to do and your property manager tells you to do, you reasonably rely on their advice, you're probably protected, even if something goes wrong. And so that's where lawyers come in. I mean, lawyers really need to ad give advice regarding reserves. They need to say the things that people don't want to hear. That's what I think. They need to, to tell people, you don't want to hear this, but you need to do a better job of attending to your reserves for the future. One of the last times I wanted to make sure we covered, because I thought this was so particularly interesting, you have suggested some kind of state-based receivership structure for condominium buildings where the association has failed to do what it was supposed to do. First, I'd like you to talk just generally about it so that our listeners understand the concept. The second thing is, do you think it would work? Yes, I do think it works. Uh, it, this is a thing that has been done. Uh, it has been done in the context of litigation. There have been court-ordered receivers put in place in a number of cases, a number happened in California and elsewhere, where things happened that associations uh, associations end up with multi-million dollar judgments against them that they couldn't pay. And uh, they were placed in receivership by judges and the receiver took over the association. I won't go into bankruptcy, but bankruptcy does not work well at all for condominium buildings. It really doesn't for a variety of reasons. It creates a lot of problems. But um, the law I'm speaking of would be something modeled on the, what's called the Illinois Distressed Condominium Property Act. It's section 14.5 of the Condo Act in Illinois. And it facilitates this process. It just says that a municipality, like the city of Chicago, for example, can go to court and file a petition saying we have a condo building that meets certain criteria uh, is failed. And they're pretty dramatic, you know, like buildings, basically serious building code violations that are, you know, it's dangerous. Too many large numbers of unoccupied units with squatters in them, this sort of thing, are really serious problems. And if they can document that, 
then they can, a judge can order that the association be put into receivership. The receiver, one receiver that does this a lot is uh, something called Community Investment Corporation, which is a sort of a not-for-profit lending institution here in Chicago. And they consolidate all the property interests. They get all the lien holders and all the owners who can be found and they put it all together and they turn the building, they deconvert it. That's the term we use. They take it out of the Condominium Property Act and turn it into an apartment building, uh, organize a loan just to give it to a building owner and put it on the market as an apartment. Now, how many times has this been done? Through the Condo Act, this provision I just talked about, I believe there have been about 300 buildings that have been deconverted. And this can also be done through Section 15 of the Condo Act by private investors who buy up the units and deconvert it. And there are at least 600 buildings in the Chicago area that have been deconverted. So we are talking at minimum 800 to 900 condominiums that no longer exist. And you know when the private people do it, it's because the buildings are in financial trouble. That's why the owners will sell to, uh, to someone who consolidates all the interest that way. And you only need to buy 80% of the units and then you can force the others to sell. So sometimes there are unhappy owners, but this is a process by which buildings that are facing insolvency can be taken out of the market and the owners bought out. My last question to you, I understand you teach law school, you teach new lawyers about these issues and introduce them to them. But our podcast is for lawyers out there in the real world. So give our listeners a couple of words of wisdom of what to look out for and how to represent their clients who are going to see these problems. Well, the, the lawyers who I would most like to communicate to would be the ones who handle real estate transactional work. Because, you know, the ones, the other group would be the ones who represent condo associations. And those folks, they really have to learn about this subject and they have to give good advice on it. But, you know, what about just the lawyers who get paid, you know, seven, eight hundred bucks or whatever to handle a real estate transaction? They are the ones who I think need to know a lot more about how condos work and about the financing issues. To really represent your client properly, you need to do more than just review the documents and you know, organize the transfer of the money and all that sort of thing. You really need to help your buyer, if you're representing the buyer, find out about what risks they're really buying into. And so you need to push hard to get the documents that you need. You need to learn how to read and understand a reserve study because your client may look at the reserve study and say, what does this mean? I don't, well, what does this mean? You need to how to get down to the bottom line and say, it means they're only 10% reserved. They have 10% what they should have. Or you know what? They have 80% of what's recommended. That's pretty solid. They're in pretty good shape. And if they say, what does that mean? They'd say, it means you either will or won't have to pay a special assessment down the road. So that's the kind of lawyer I'd really like to reach out to and say, learn more about this. You don't need to be an expert, but you need to understand what kinds of risks your potential buyers are facing. Dr. Evan McKenzie, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. 
Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today. 